0: Open your copy of God's Word to Matthew chapter 12, 12th chapter of Matthew. We come back this week to finish up what we started last week, which was looking at a series of controversies over the Sabbath and uh, Jesus and his opponents, uh, if you will, um, disagreeing about this. This would have never been what you might have expected to be the flashpoint in Jesus's life. There are so many other areas where you think there might have been a great controversy and great cause for alarm, but this Sabbath issue wound up being the issue over which the Pharisees had the greatest angst against Christ, and you'll find more direct connection between their plots to kill him and his related to his violations of sabbath than anything else so these are incredibly important insights for us as we realize that they are going after christ in their own self-righteous ways but as they do that we started to see last week that the one being exposed is not christ it is them It's actually this controversy that reveals as much about their heart, about their pride, about their self-righteousness, about their lack of knowledge of God, about their misunderstanding of the law, about all that stuff. It reveals more about them than it does about Christ. And this whole controversy just sort of brings that to the surface. Now, if you were with us last week, we started to look at this passage in verse 1 through 14, and we were looking at the ways that Jesus was... Exposing these guys, showing their twisted, flawed approach to the law of God, particularly the Sabbath law, and how they blinded themselves to God and to his purposes through it. And that begins in the first four verses with what we called the missing principle of human priority, or missing the principle of human priority. This was. You remember, uh, sort of uh, erupted as Jesus was making His way along the road as His disciples following along with Him. They were growing through the pathways of the grain fields, His disciples reaching out to grab just a few heads of the grain and rubbing them together and starting to eat. When the Pharisees see this, they confront Jesus on the road and ask Him, or say to Him, look, your disciples are doing what's not lawful to do on the Sabbath. To which Jesus responds by pointing them back to the Old Testament, particularly an incident when, when David, fleeing from Saul, stopped in the temple and uh, asked for some food. And the priest who was in the temple gave him food from inside the temple, in fact, from inside the priest chambers from the showbread, which the scripture said was not lawful for anyone to eat except the priest alone. The well, priest did this, of course. Why? Because he understood that behind all these laws, behind all of this sort of uh, covenant, and all these ceremonies, was God's heart for people. The law, the law of God, is ultimately made as a blessing, is made as a means of edifying man. And so for him to take the law and to, to turn his heart against man would be a violation of the very purpose of the law. The bread, the very bread that he gave to David and to his men, although it was prescribed for the priest in the, in the law, the very bread itself represented and symbolized provision, provision for Israel. So this priest understood this. He understood that behind all these laws was, uh, was really God's love for man, God's love for humanity. And so he fed David. He fed his men that day. And this is uh, what Jesus is pointing them to in terms of the Sabbath. The Sabbath, as he says in the Gospel of Mark, the Sabbath was not or a man was not made for the Sabbath. The Sabbath was made for man. That's the whole purpose of the law. It was designed because of God's desire to bring a blessing to humanity. Jesus moves from that to a second principle in verse 5 that we call the principle of misplaced morality or missing morality, however you want to say it. He points them to a second observation, if you will, from the Old Testament in verse 5. How on the Sabbath, the priest in the temple break the Sabbath. And they're innocent. They violate the Sabbath. At least they violate the restrictions of the Sabbath against work because the priests are involved with all kinds of duties which for any other person would simply be called work. They're lifting, they're cutting, they're washing, they're doing all kinds of things that would have been restricted seemingly for every other person. And so the Sabbath, which required a kind of rest for people would not provide rest for these priests. The standard of the priest, by the way, was very high. There were all kinds of ways that priests could disqualify themselves, they could defile themselves. There's a whole list of things in the book of Leviticus that if they did or if they touched or if they didn't do, would render them unfit, unclean, profane, and therefore unable to serve in the temple because an unfit priest uh, renders an offering unfit. A profane priest renders an offering profane. A defiled priest renders an offering defiled. And so therefore you can't have defiled priest offering up sacrifices or it just ruins the whole enterprise. And so God would never allow a, an unfit priest. He would never allow a profaned priest to, to offer an, a, a sacrifice. And so the logic here is clear in Jesus's reasoning. If somehow the priests are able to do all of this work and yet not be defiled or profaned, working on the Sabbath does not defile or profane you. Or another way to say that, as we mentioned last week, is that the principle of rest is not moral in the Sabbath. That's not a moral absolute within God's, uh, if you will, universal law. And we confirm that by just noticing that the principle of rest is applied not just to humanity, but God even prescribes it for animals who are non-moral creatures. These are not creatures who live under the law or are going to be judged by the law or have eternal destiny. They are temporal, non-moral beings. And yet God prescribes rest for them. And by the way, he even prescribes rest for your fields, for the dirt of the ground. And all of these things tell us That rest in and of itself is not a moral issue. And if you needed even more proof, as we mentioned last week, the fact that God himself does not rest. He rested on the day, the seventh day after creation, but as Jesus says in John 5, 17, ever since then, he's been continuously working. He's continuously working. He's not resting. And so since God's not resting, and since morality is defined most essentially by who God is, by his character and what he does. Since God does not rest. Therefore morality is not defined by resting. That's not the ultimate morality. There are things associated with the Sabbath. Which are moral and non-moral. But rest is not one of them. And all of that sort of establishes this principle. That Jesus is able to point them to. That they have misplaced the whole idea of morality, they have focused it on these restrictions, uh, uh, restrictions and, and, and principles and mandates of rest. By the way, just for your own benefit, just, just saying that rest is not moral does not mean that it's not wise. I mean, there's a tremendous amount of wisdom built in God's, God's, if you want to say, creation cycle of work and rest, work and rest. God God demonstrated that obviously himself even though he didn't need a rest he demonstrated a rest as a kind of uh, a kind of establishment of this cycle and he even builds it as i mentioned a minute ago into the whole cycle agricultural cycle for Israel they're supposed to give their land rest every 7 years and all of this stuff is really uh, uh if you want to say it's necessary it's it's in fact a reminder That land needs rest because land gets depleted, because land needs to replenish its minerals and all of its resources in the soil and in the ground. In other words, land, your fields need rest because they are not inexhaustible resources. They're not inexhaustible resources. They do get worn out and they do need to be replenished. And likewise, you and I are not inexhaustible. You and I are limited. We're finite creatures. We get depleted just like the minerals in the dirt of the ground. We have to take time to replenish and to renew our bodies and our minds and our hearts. And so there's a profound wisdom, if not a morality, there's at least a profound wisdom in the whole creation cycle of work and rest. And this wisdom was built into ultimately, God's covenant with Israel. He prescribed for them rest on a Saturday, on the seventh day. That idea, by the way, was unparalleled in the ancient world. Uh, nations and cultures before Israel uh, didn't have anything like this. There was no cycle built into In fact, Josephus, the Jewish historian, mentions that it's really not until the Roman era that nations around the world started to mimic Israel, where they all started to sort of build in a, a day of rest once every seven days. But for most ancient cultures, that wasn't the case. Rest was only for the powerful, only for the elite, only for the wealthy. But everyone else, the peasants, the slaves, all those people, they worked incessantly, all day, every day, round the clock uh. uh Seven days a week with maybe a few religious festivals here and there where they wouldn't work. But theirs was one unbroken, monotonous sort of rhythm of life. But this is why God established the law of the Sabbath on a Saturday, a day of rest. He pointed back, you may remember, to their slavery, to Israel's slavery as a cornerstone of one of the reasons for the Sabbath, Deuteronomy 5.15, you remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt and the Lord your God brought you out with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. Therefore, the Lord your God commands you to keep the Sabbath day because you were a slave, because you were in that cycle of uh, of unending work. You were enslaved to those masters and to those, to those elites who ground you into the ground. And the point is you 're no no longer slaves you 're not a slave to any person and don 't make yourself a slave to constant work don 't make yourself to a slave if you will to productivity and to accomplishment on a personal level. This was a kind of a bulwark against letting the duties of whatever you're doing creep into the rest of your life. There's a a law out there, it's called Parkinson's Law, which says work expands to fill the time available for its completion. And we know that. I mean, if you're involved with work, you feel that work creep wanting to push into every. Uh, hour of your life, every corner of your life, of your thoughts, and all those other things, and we're always struggling trying to find work-life balance, and that's a stress for people in all of society. So God built in this law not just for for personal reasons and personal rest, but even beyond those individual reasons, He built it in for societal reasons to guard, to make sure that there was a minimal level of fairness throughout society for all people so that they could they could experience this kind of renewal and replenishment at least once a week with a day of rest. That's why when you see the Sabbath in the Old Testament so many times, it's linked to questions of social justice. In a society like ours, especially when there is a sort of a triumph of productivity and a kind of ultimate goal in life to to define yourself by what you get done and so many people are bound up defining themselves by what they achieve or how much they can accumulate even so that your work and everything that you do is filling your whole life with a kind of restless dissatisfaction this is so vital this principle of rest a day of rest to bring everything to a screeching halt and free you from the frantic concern of meeting deadlines and checking off lists and accomplishing tasks. So, so in that way, there's a lot of wisdom in a Sabbath idea. There's a lot of wisdom in a day of rest, a cycle of work and rest to, if nothing else, reconnect yourself with your own limitations. To recognize that you are not inexhaustible. To recognize that you are finite, that you do need to be replenished, You you do need to be restored in that way. And so there's a tremendous wisdom in what God demonstrated and what God established in life. The issue for the Pharisees, though, is that they weren't focused on any of that stuff. They weren't focused on just sort of the societal benefits and, you know, Relieving uh, duties for the oppressed or personal benefit. any they, they, they were not concerned about all that. This was for them all about self-righteousness. They define themselves by their own man-made rules, and they use, among other things, the Sabbath to demonstrate their dedication, their personal merit, their personal spiritual achievement, their standing in superiority above everyone else. It proved in their minds their righteousness, and they were offended that Jesus would not recognize and praise them for it. They were offended by that. And so Jesus just sort of wipes all that away and, and points out their absolute missed assumptions about what morality was all about. The morality of Sabbath rest. He said, it doesn't exist. It doesn't exist. He presses the issue even further in verse 6 with another principle demonstrating their distortion of God's Sabbath law, we might call it covenant superiority. Covenant superiority. He simply says, I tell you something greater than the temple is here. Something greater. He doesn't say someone probably because, you know, this is uh, the temple he's talking about. He's making a comparison with a, uh, if you will, a non- Uh, Human, uh, non-personal object. It doesn't have, uh, you know, gender, male or female. So he uses actually a, a neuter comparative here, but he's referring to himself. He's comparing himself to the temple. And he says someone or something greater than the temple is here. Now, this is obviously something the Pharisees were missing. They were missing the arrival of the Messiah who, surpassed the excellency of the temple in so many ways. He just talked about these priests and how the priests set aside their restrictions on work in order to serve the temple. And in light of that, he says, by the way, something greater than the temple is here. Now, you have to understand to to kind of get your heads around this, that the temple was the focalized place of God's presence in Israel. God obviously is omnipresent He's everywhere all the time. But in a unique and a special way, he manifested his presence among Israel in the, the tabernacle and then eventually the permanent temple. He did it in an inner chamber, in an, an inner sanctuary called the Holy of Holies in the midst of an, of an ark carved with two cherubim. And he said his presence dwelt there between the cherubim. And this was his special gift To the people of Israel that he would dwell among them in a unique way unlike he dwelt among any other nation on the face of the earth. They had God's special presence. But Jesus is telling them that it's actually in him that God is manifesting himself now in an even greater way. Jesus Christ, as Paul says, is God. In bodily form. He, as John says, he came and he tabernacled among us. He pitched his tent among us. That's a reference to the presence of God in the Old Testament tabernacle. Here he was, in a, in a much more manifest way, demonstrating God's presence among us. And so Jesus is pointing out something Uh, profound to them. In the old covenant, people related to God through a temple. In the new covenant, they relate to God through me, through the person of Jesus Christ. And since that's the case, and since in the old covenant, it was appropriate for the priests to do certain labor on the Sabbath in order to serve the temple, how much more appropriate is it for believers in the new covenant to set aside any kind of Sabbath restrictions to serve Jesus Christ at any time? Not only that, I mean, but the whole apparatus, the whole temple and all the sacrifices and all the law for that matter and even the sabbath all that stuff you have to understand all of that stuff was intended to point to christ he's the ultimate embodiment of all that stuff and here he was standing in front of them in spite of all their study of the law and all their study of the sacrifices and all their study of the temple and the sabbath they didn't even recognize it but the bible says that stuff was supposed to point to him in fact, the, 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 the Sabbath law explicitly, Colossians 2.17, the Sabbath and new moons and festivals and all of those special set-aside days, all of that stuff, Colossians 2.17 says, was a shadow of things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. So it was a shadow in the sense that it was kind of a vague outline. Of what was supposed to come. Or Hebrews 10.1. The law was a shadow of the good things to come. Instead of the true form of those realities. So all of this apparatus. All of this uh, temple. All of this uh, Sabbath stuff. It was just simply the outline. But the real substance. The real stuff. Is Christ. He is the greater temple. And he's the greater Sabbath. In fact, Hebrews 4.9 says that. There still remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. There is still a salvation in heaven. He says, for the one who has entered his rest, into the rest of Christ that is, the one who has entered his rest himself has rested from his works as God rested from his. So in other words, the, 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 the sinner who finally reaches the point, they've been working, they've been striving, they've been laboring, they've been agonizing, trying to find in this life some level of peace and satisfaction, trying to demonstrate in some way their superiority, trying to establish their morality, trying to exalt themselves above other people, trying to make themselves into something That they can feel good about and they can boast about and they can do all that. He says when they finally reach the end of themselves and probably when they finally realize, I should say, their limitations. When they are, if you will, at the end of their week and completely, completely spent. And when they realize that they need a rest. They'll find that rest and they'll find it in Christ. He's the Sabbath rest he's the rest from all of your agony he's the rest from all of your uh, the, all your anxiety he's the rest from all of your heartache, all of your work, all of your attempts to establish your moral superiority he's the rest from all that stuff it's all him he's the rest from all the weariness of your shame from all the labor of your Efforts for righteousness from all of the tiredness of your guilt. He's the rest. And the true Sabbath. The Mosaic Covenant had a rest for your physical bodies, but that was just a dim reflection of ultimately salvation's perfect rest in Christ. So Jesus is basically telling these guys, there's a new era, guys. The old thing, the old temple, the old covenant, it's no longer... The primary means of relating to God, I'm here and I'm greater than the temple. I'm the greater manifestation of God. I'm trying to take you from the old covenant to the new covenant, from the shadowy to the clear, from the external to the internal. I'm trying to help you along with that. But they weren't having it. He presses the issue even further in verse seven, with another principle, the principle, we might say, of prioritized mercy. He tells them, "If you had known what this means, I desire mercy and not sacrifice, you would not have condemned the guiltless." Now, that's a quotation from the book of Hosea, "I desire mercy and not sacrifice." It comes in chapter six, when Jesus, excuse me, when God is talking to Israel, he's talking to a group of people who seemingly... Seemingly, were religious. They spoke about seeking the Lord. In fact, in Hosea six three, they're saying to themselves constantly, "Let us press on to know the Lord. Let us press on to know the Lord." They're always talking about knowing God more. They're always talking about uh, knowledge and theology and filling their heads and finding out more stuff and having more Bible studies and all of that stuff. They they sound like a very zealous and a very religious people but Jesus excuse me but God goes on and says that their devotion is like the morning dew it, it just sort of sort of lands from time to time but in the scorching heat of the day it fades away as quickly as it shows up and the issue is that behind all of their speech was a shallow and flimsy religious facade and underneath was nothing but pride and self-righteousness, and hypocrisy, and self-interest. The point of Hosea 6 is simply to say this. God tells them that He will know them. He will know them. He'll know their true repentance when their life is marked as much by mercy as it is by all of this religious talk. When their life is marked as much by mercy as it is about uh, all this concern with religious devotion. When their life is marked as much by reaching out to the weak and wanting to uh, help the uh, vulnerable and, and wanting to come alongside of those who are oppressed. When it is marked as much by that as it is about wanting to gather for studying the Bible or knowing God or whatever it might be. Whenever their life is matched by that, then he'll know them. But until then, he doesn't. And he tells them right there in verse 6, I desire mercy and not sacrifice. And, and, as the rest of the verse says, true knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. You have all this God talk. You have all of this theology. But none of it is of any value. None of your sacrifices are None of your uh, praises, none of your study, none of your knowledge, none of your Sabbath keeping. If it doesn't make you more like God, then it's useless. And one thing we know about God is He's merciful, He is a God of abundant mercy, He's a God that seeks and saves. The sinner. He's a God who welcomes those who are broken and weak. And He desires those who follow Him to do the same. Now, this applied all the more to the Sabbath. The Sabbath was as much about mercy to others as it was about anything else. Uh, certainly more about mercy to others than it was about your own personal leisure and ease. As we said earlier, from a social standpoint, it was a deliberate pause in the product or cycle of productivity where you were to redeploy your resources in relief toward others. This wasn't a call for you to rest at the expense of those who have to serve you while you rest. It was a determination, an intentional choice not to lay a burden of work on the backs of anyone around you, even on your animals. This is why the Old Testament, especially the prophets, link this Sabbath observance with issues of neglecting and abusing the vulnerable in society. For example, Isaiah 1.13, God says, I cannot endure iniquity in the solemn assembly, your new moon, your Sabbaths. He said, I don't want your Sabbaths. I don't really care about your Sabbaths if they're full of iniquity. And what's the solution, he says, in verse 17? Learn to do good, seek justice, correct oppression, bring justice to the fatherless, plead the cause of the widow. So if your Sabbath is a Sabbath that's worth anything, if your new moons and your festivals are worth anything, let them be worth this, establishing peace and mercy for those around you. Isaiah 58, the Lord begins a chapter by rebuking Israel because they had made personal desire and personal gratification the most important thing in their lives. That was what defined them. Even in their religion, he says, it was about personal gratification. As a matter of fact, in verse 3, he says, even in the day of your fast, you seek your own pleasure. Even your fasting has become all self-oriented. I mean, how in the world can that be? Because it was all about boasting and pride and self-exaltation and all of those things. He goes on to say, is this not the fast I choose? To loose the bonds of wickedness, to undo the straps of the yoke, to let the oppressed go free and to break every yoke? Is it not to share your bread with the hungry and bring the homeless poor into your house? He says you want to know what fasting is about it's not about denying yourself food it's about getting food to others This this is this is the this is the merciful god this is the merciful purpose behind all of these uh, all of these ceremonies and these rituals And Israel wasn't getting it. And the same thing is true about the Sabbath there in Isaiah 58, 13. He tells them that they had even corrupted their Sabbath. So it had become all about them, all about their self-pleasure and their own self-orientation and their own delight when it should have been, as with the fasting, about seeking the benefit of others. See, God's rebukes for violating the Sabbath are articulated so many times For Israel drifting into this kind of commodity culture where they were always concerned about the next achievement and extracting the next dollar or shekel or whatever it might be. But underneath it all, underneath it all was a culture that was drifting more and more towards exclusivity, towards bifurcation of opportunities. See, God's Sabbath was always concerned in its original state with creating a more inclusive and generous culture. Where people, all people, no matter what their station, all have at least at that basic level the same dignity of a day of rest. As a matter of fact, he even applies this. He uses the Sabbath language and the Sabbath law in the language of jubilees. A jubilee takes that principle of the seventh, the Sabbath, and it sets a law where uh, they, a group of seven years, a uh, seven sets of seven years, 49 years, that is, that if you had purchased a piece of property from anyone in Israel, you had to return it at no cost. You could farm it uh, all the years that you had it. You could make profit off it. But on the Jubilee year, you return it to its original owner. Because all of this, God says in Leviticus, is to honor the Sabbath. Because all of this stuff, all this Sabbath law was a part of a hedge against an inequality in society. And so Jesus is trying to help them understand that. You guys have missed this. you focused on all these restrictions. Don't you understand that the Sabbath, if the Sabbath is about anything, it's about mercy. It's about lifting burdens. It's a pause from all of your commercial competitiveness, from all your self-righteous competitiveness, and a refocusing on the needs of other people. It is a Sabbath. It is a law which is made for man. And if you had understood this, I desire mercy and not sacrifice. Then you would have understood the Sabbath. He goes on, showing their distortion yet again in verse 8 with another principle, the principle of rightful authority. He just simply says to them, for the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. The Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. Of the Sabbath. In other words, they're man made laws. They're not the ones that determine all this. It is His will, it is His desire, it is His purpose which is determinative, which is a bold claim, really, when you understand that this in the Old Testament is specifically what God said about Himself. When God gave the Sabbath in the book of Exodus, He describes it over and over again as a Sabbath to the Lord. A Sabbath to the Lord. A Sabbath to the Lord. Twice in Exodus 16, again in Exodus 20, later on in the book of Deuteronomy, again in the book of uh, Ezekiel, a Sabbath to the Lord. A Sabbath to the Lord. Or he says it in another way, Exodus thirty one thirteen, above all you shall keep my Sabbaths. Or Leviticus nineteen thirteen, you shall keep my Sabbaths. I am the Lord. Or Leviticus 19.30, you shall keep my Sabbaths. I am the Lord. Leviticus 26, you shall keep my Sabbaths. I am the Lord. Ezekiel, I gave my Sabbaths as a sign between you and me that you might know that I am the Lord. So over and over and over again, who's the Lord of the Sabbath? God is the Lord of the Sabbath. And so for Jesus to stand in front of them and say, I am the Lord of the Sabbath. There's nothing less than a claim of being God himself. And he's reminding them that he's the one, therefore, that determines the purpose of the Sabbath. Not them. He is the Lord and not them. Which is always the problem with sinners. They're always wanting to dictate to God... What they think righteous is, righteousness is and what righteousness is not, whether it is their man-made religious laws or whether it is their atheistic sense of personal virtue. They're always wanting to lecture God and tell God all the ways that that God has disappointed them or God has not fulfilled their desire or God has not lived up to what they think he ought to be or God's not proved himself enough to them or God's not revealed himself enough to them. And they're always out there dictating to God what God should do or ought to do or whatever those things. And he's standing back the whole time and he's saying, I am the Lord. You're not the Lord, and it's not your standard, and it's not your righteousness, not your laws, and it's not all those other things. You want to know who determines who's a violator and who's not? I do, he says. Which is essentially what he's telling these Pharisees. And it is a a stinging rebuke to their pride and their arrogance. If anybody ought to be upset... About people violating the Sabbath, it's not them. It's God. Because they're the ones who are misunderstanding and twisting His Sabbath. If anyone ought to be standing under judgment, it's not Him, it's them. And just like you, if you're standing there and you're criticizing God and you're complaining about God, what God hasn't done for you or hasn't uh, revealed to you or hasn't done in your life or whatever it might be, and you're sitting there constantly critiquing God and you think that you're upset with God. And God is saying to you, if anyone, if anyone has a ground to be upset, it is me against you because you are not the Lord He is He's not the one accountable to you you are the one accountable to Him and so there is this principle that He's giving them here this principle of rightful authority over the Sabbath and really over everything else well, very quickly, that leads us to our final point, And Matthew shares it, beginning in verse 9, shares another way in which Jesus is exposing their distortion of the Sabbath law. We'll call this the principle of purposeful activity. The principle of purposeful activity. He went on from there, we're told, and he entered their synagogue and a man was there with a withered hand. And they asked him, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath so that they might accuse him? Luke actually says, Luke's parallel account, he says that they, they were watching, seeing whether he would heal on the Sabbath so that they could accuse him. They actually came anticipating this. This is the reason why they showed up at the synagogue that day. They were looking for some reason to accuse him, something that he had done. They had already settled in their minds that they weren't going to follow him. Now all they needed was a reason, a cause. Which, by the way, implies that He hadn't given them anything yet. Because He had no sin. Because He had no reason for accusation. There was nothing in His life that they could accuse. They're still looking. Their intention... By the way, here wasn't to protect the sacredness of the Sabbath. It wasn't to uphold the law. It wasn't any of those things. Their intention wasn't even to worship God as they came to the synagogue that day. Their whole desire, their whole intention was to justify their own rejection of Christ. Their rejection of Him. Their whole system, even their religious system, was all about protecting their own man-made image of superiority. This is what the sinner does. He has no real reason to reject Christ, but he's looking. He's looking. It's the heart of a sinner, the Scripture says, to not want to be reproved. A scoffer, it says, will hate the one who reproves him. He doesn't want to be exposed doesn't want to be corrected, doesn't want to be humbled, doesn't want to confess. Well, that's these guys. They show up at this meeting with one intent in mind, which is to destroy Christ. And by the way, down in verse 14, when they don't get the answer that they're looking for, they still conspire against Him and decide to go out and destroy Him. Well, Jesus answers them. He, he answers their questions, their deceitful schemes in verse 11. Which one of you has a sheep? If it falls into a pit, will not take hold of it and lift it out? That's, by the way, a, a, he's tapping into something that was a big discussion in those days. We know it. Ancient sources tell us that this was an ongoing, sort of a raging debate among various rabbis there were the sort of the hardcore people the Essenes they're the ones that lived out in the Qumran community out by the Dead Sea in their community document or their community rule as they call it they explicitly said if you if your animal falls into a pit you just wait you just can't do anything on the Sabbath by the way Israel had all these pits uh, because they dug into the limestone these, um, uh, these cisterns. It was an arid, dry climate, didn't rain all the time. But they wanted these places to capture rainwater so that they have a store of water during the long seasons, uh, during the long dry spells. So Israel literally was just sort of, sort of uh, pocked full of all of these pits. And so animals falling into pits was a big deal. It was a big part of their life and there was a big discussion among rabbis what to do. And so you had this hardcore scenes, the aesthetics, you know, just like you don't do anything. And there were other rabbis that said, well, you know, you can drop a few pieces of food down to it, but you can't lift it out. And then some like, no, no, you can put a couple piece of wood. Maybe the animal can get itself out on a piece of wood. And then some came along and said, no, lift thing out. It's okay if it's in danger, you know, if it's going to die, but otherwise leave it in there. And they're just constantly like all these raging debates about what exactly are you supposed to do when an animal falls in a pit? And Jesus just goes right to the heart of that. You guys have wasted all this time, all these hours and hours and days and weeks and years debating what to do with your animal that falls into a pit. Are you not concerned about a human being? Let me just ask you a simple question, he says in verse 12. Is it lawful to do good? Is there any problem with doing good on the Sabbath? I mean, it's a simple question, right? But it completely exposes these guys because they had constructed a religious system that was actually preventing people from doing good, which is ridiculous. The law was never meant for that. Do you understand? God's law was never meant for that. Jesus summarizes the purpose of the law. He says the law was supposed to do two things. It was supposed to make you love God with all your heart, mind, soul and strength. And it's supposed to make you love your neighbor as yourself. That's the purpose of the law. Or I love this over in the book of Galatians when Paul says, When you come to Christ, you give your heart to Christ, He frees you. He frees you from the law. He frees you from all those restrictions. He frees you from Sabbaths and ceremonies. He frees you from circumcision, from all that stuff in Galatians chapter five. And not only that, he frees you from the works of the flesh, from the sexual immorality, from the sensuality, from enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, drunkenness, all that stuff. He frees you from all that stuff. And what he does is he puts... God's Spirit within you, so that now your life is marked by love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. And I love this. Against such things there is no law. There's no restriction. You want to be loving? There's nothing against being loving. You want to be kind? There's no restriction against kindness. Be as kind as you want. Be as patient as you want. Be as peaceful as you want. There's no law restricting your peacefulness. If it's peacefulness defined as God's peacefulness or love defined as God's love or kindness defined as God's love, guess what? Be as kind as you want. That's an understanding, a correct understanding of the law and of righteousness and morality and God so he asked him this basic question is it lawful to do something good they had no answer for that unfortunately because their corrupt righteousness has so distorted their hearts and minds they couldn't even be free to do good They were so captivated by a twisted view of the law, so captivated by their own pride and self-interest, so captivated by their own uh, sort of uh, self-righteous exaltation. You know, the scribes, the rabbis in those days said, if somebody broke a bone, you couldn't set it till the next day. If a woman was pregnant, you try to convince her to wait. If she's, you know, if the baby starts crowning, you just, just go ahead. And you can deliver it. That's okay. But if you can, try to cur- encourage her to wait. If somebody's sick, you can put a couple drops of, of uh, you know, some medicine in their mouth. But that's about it. That's all you can do. I mean, it just became just this incredibly callous, rigid approach to life. The whole law, Paul says, is fulfilled in this one statement. Love your neighbor as yourself. These guys misunderstood that. They misunderstood that. They were just concerned with establishing their superiority. Accusing God. Critiquing God. Twisting his word to insulate themselves against criticism and to justify their own righteousness. You know what they should have been doing? They should have been recognizing their limitations, they should have been confessing their weariness, they should have been realizing that they need a Sabbath rest. They should have been acknowledging that they are finite, limited creatures who have exhausted all of their resources and still have not found life. They should have been acknowledging the weariness and the anxiety of their shame for their pride and their rejection of God. They should have been doing all of that, acknowledging their need for rest and then finding that rest in the Savior. Jesus had already told them back in chapter 11, come to me all who labor and are heavy laden and I will give you rest. That's the way you respond to this man. He came and he dwelt among us, God and human flesh, and he came not to strap some sort of legalistic binding yoke impossible for you to bear, not to pound you further into the dirt with all these restrictions. He came to give you Sabbath rest. Now all you need to do is acknowledge your limitations. Acknowledge that you have wearied yourself and you have spent yourself depleted yourself. There's nothing else that you have that can answer your life's problems except for him. Father, we're grateful for this revelation of your grace and mercy in Christ comes to us in the message of the Sabbath but it is manifest to us in every way through his life. We hear it. We embrace it. We cast ourselves into that rest we have nothing by which we can rescue ourselves otherwise and so we're so grateful for him I pray for those who are here today who haven't entered into his rest that they would finally surrender themselves to him we pray this in Christ's name Amen